directors of uh, the Notre Dame International Security Center. And we are delighted to welcome Suzanne Fry uh, from the National Intelligence Council. Um, I'd say welcome, but really it's welcome back because she is a Notre Dame alum. Um, after doing her degree here at Notre Dame in government, uh, she went to NYU and got a PhD in politics. And for the past several years, has been working in the intelligence community uh, in all manner of functions, but specifically thinking about what long-term trends are going to be like, how they're going to influence American security in the future. Um, and that is what the, the NIC does, right? They're most famous for uh, doing a, a every four-year analysis of what the strategic environment will be for the next 20 years or so. Um, the most recent one came out in January, The Paradox of Progress. Um, so she's going to speak about that today. And before we get started, um, she'll speak for about 20 or 25 minutes, then we'll open it up for questions. Um, and I just want to uh, put the word out that the NIC is a policy-neutral organization. Um, and so to work with at, at the NIC, um, people have to show discretion, and they have to earn the trust of senior policymakers. Um, so we'd ask that you respect that role and, and not ask questions about the current administration or policies of the current administration, because um, that's, that's not what they do, um, and it puts them in a, an untenable position. Okay. So um, thank you so much for coming, Suzanne, and, and we're happy to have you take it away. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for the introduction and for the opportunity to bring uh, the work of the National Intelligence Council here to Notre Dame. We've had a fantastic morning visiting with graduate students in the Keogh Schools uh, program. Um, and I'm really, really delighted to be able to share um, the findings of our most recent Global Trends project with you today. Um, as Rose said, the role of the NIC is a little bit different for those who are not entirely familiar with the, the inner workings of, of Washington and the foreign policy apparatus there. The intelligence community, especially the analytic pieces of it, uh, our policy neutral. Our role is to assess uh, the facts of the world as, as we see them and to give our best assessment to decision makers um, about what they might mean uh, for U.S. national security. And so in order to do that, we have to um, be as objective and as policy neutral as possible. So it's, it's a, uh, it may sound like a completely impossible feat to, to check your um, your own beliefs at the door, but that's what we're paid to do each day. And, and as a, a as a taxpayer, you should be very happy that we do that. So I'm going to ask you to join me in that, that process to, uh, this morning or this afternoon. Let's see if I can figure this out. So Global Trends. Global Trends is an effort that we do once every four years to identify the key trends and uncertainties shaping the strategic landscape to come. The reason we do this is to set, help our government develop Na the national security strategy, as well as the national defense and military strategies. So in order to develop these huge fundamental and framing documents about U.S. interests and values in the world, you have to have an understanding of the strategic landscape. You know, who's out there in the world? What is it they want? How, how will their interests and values impinge upon American interests and values? And so we have this fantastic, um, frankly, mechanism by which we do this from the intelligence perspective, and it's called Global Trends. It started in 1996 uh, when the National Intelligence Council was actually a part of the Central Intelligence Agency. And I'll just say a, one tiny little word about what is the NIC, as we like to call it. This is, um, think about this as the you know, preeminent place for strategic analysis within the U.S. intelligence community. We have officers from CIA, DIA, NSA, the alphabet soup, 
of, of our uh, business uh, who come together on rotations. And essentially, it's about 17 or 18 of our top analysts on every region and function, uh, topical issue. And we come together and we write products like National Intelligence Estimates, which is essentially a classified version of something like Global Trends. We also do very senior level policy support. So our foreign policy process consists of interagency meetings at the deputies level and principals level. We staff those meetings in terms of providing the intelligence support to frame those discussions. And we do a third very important function, which is going out in the world and meeting with people to basically get their insights about how they're interpreting issues of the day. And we call that outreach. And, and the Global Trends Project is outreach on steroids. And I'm going to tell you about that in a second. So we do this once every four years to help an incoming or returning administration plan. Uh, so we released the most recent edition uh, in January. It's available online at our website if you're interested in reading it. Um, and it's essentially a framework for making sense of change and making sense of the various issues that are out there and how they come together. It has a forecasting or foresight quality to it, but it is really not intended to be a crystal ball of the future. Rather, it is a framework by which to make sense of how do all these things like technology and economy and so forth come together. Um, and let's see here, let me move this sucker. So how do we do this? How does the NIC, this group of, actually it's about 100 or so officers, how do we pull this off? Well, the first step is to get out of Washington. To understand the future, we have to actually get out and, and see the world. And many of you are probably familiar with a science fiction author who once said, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. There's actually quite a bit of wisdom in that statement. And so we went to 35 different countries, plus the Palestinian Authority, over the course of about two years to speak with people, both elites as well as non-traditional, um, those with non-traditional perspectives, youth, religious leaders, and so forth, um, to understand how they're making sense of change from where they sit. So what does a new technology plus a climate change um, um, or, or suffering from environmental effects of climate change in Kinshasa mean to a small business person, owner of a small business, I should say? Um, and so that type of conversation is quite revealing about the types of decisions that people will make down the road when those, those phenomenon come together. So we went to universities and on and on. I'd um, be glad to talk about some of that. So step one, get out of Washington. Step two. Good research design. This is also for those of you coming here for the football game. This is also a lecture for the undergraduates. Very important to have proper research design, especially when you're undertaking a big, messy, multidisciplinary project. So for those of you in the futures or forecasting uh, community, you'll recognize this image. This is a cone of uncertainty. And what we're depicting here is um, our confidence level in judgments over time, looking into the future. And so the way this process starts for us is we've got about nine different topical areas that we're covering. Economics, security, environment, technology, you can read them. And we're examining how do those different topics, how are they likely to manifest themselves in each region over the next five years as well as over the next 20 years. And so we went through this very formal exercise identifying the key trends and uncertainties in those functional areas in all regions for those two time frames. But they, you can't just understand them in isolation from one another. They come together. And that's really the synthesis part of our project here. And so what we do in the report is make some judgments about what we think the key 
uh, drivers and developments of the next five years will be. And then we offer some thoughts about making sense of the next 20 years. And the way we do that, the 20 years look, is that we use scenarios. So we judge that there are three key uncertainties that are before governments and organizations and individuals looking out 20 years. The first key uncertainty is will economic, global in economic integration continue? That's the first one. The second one is in a period of heightened geopolitical competition, are we likely to see new patterns of cooperation or conflict emerge? So we've read probably an awful lot about the post-1945 world order coming under substantial stress. Will new institutions and practices emerge or will we go back to a spheres of influence world, which is where we believe it's trending right now? And then the final key uncertainty is Given the proliferation of new actors, um, by that I mean uh, whether it's NGOs or universities like Notre Dame or uh, multinational corporations, even groups like ISIS that are emerging, so both forces for good and forces for bad, uh, there are lots of ways of envisioning governance moving forward. How might that unfold? And so that's the, the third key uncertainty. So you can see, so that's basically the arc of the story of our project, starting from these key trends trying to anticipate how they'll come together in the next five years, and then providing scenarios analysis for the next 20. And the reason for the scenarios analysis is that the policy side, so when we deliver this to policymakers, they develop strategy with it. In order to develop strategy, they often want to make sure that their strategies are robust to different types of conditions and under different planning assumptions. And so those three scenarios are designed to test some, some pretty important planning assumptions in US foreign policy. All right, so moving on to the trends, that is the title of the report. Um, we like to start this conversation with an understanding of where we've been over the last 200 years. And we do that by, by really um, taking note and recognizing the amazing human development progress that has occurred in the last 20 years. And so what this image is showing you the basic shape of the image is we're looking at world population. And so in 1820, about a billion people. Moving forward to 2015, 7.8 billion in the world. All right, so this is, these are the data we're looking at here. And of course, you see the, the two uh, shades of, we've got a dark shade of blue and then the green. And what we're looking at is the share of global population living under $2 a day is in the navy blue and the share not living under $2 a day, not in extreme poverty. And what you see for the first time starting about 1970, if I'm reading this correctly, um, 1970 is the share of people who are no longer living in extreme poverty goes down, or are living in extreme poverty, excuse me, goes down for the first time in human history. A very big deal, an amazing accomplishment. Um, all sorts of reasons for that. The most important reasons concur, concern, um, frankly, governance policies resulting in better nutrition, better sanitation, so better overall quality of life conditions. So people are living longer um, and they're living better, higher quality lives. Their diets are changing and so forth. So along with all that, so that's the good side of progress. The paradoxical side of progress, of course, is that with these lifestyle changes and many more people, we see a tremendous amount of stress on our environmental systems and, and frankly, natural world. And this man manifests in terms of pollution, it manifests in terms of soil quality, water quality, and so forth. Urbanization takes off during this time frame as well. So um, here's just some initial framing of where we've been and where we're going, all right? 
And please feel free to ask questions and interrupt along the way. But I'll try to zip through this. A more recent snapshot of history, the last 20 years, this is looking at um, distribution of, of gains and losses of income since 1988. So basically, did incomes go up or did they go down based upon um, your cohort level? So just let me very carefully walk through this chart because it's a little bit hard to understand sometimes. This is actually called the so-called elephant chart, and it's been in the press quite a bit in the last few years by um, the output of a work of a political economist by Branko Milanovic, the World Bank at the time when he did this work. And he's depicting on the horizontal axis, the far left of that axis is the very poor in the world, the far right of the axis is the richest in the world. And the vertical axis is the cumulative increase um, in income over the last 20 years. So how much did your incomes rise? All right, and it's in, uh, so let's start at the tail end of the elephant here, which is the lower left-hand side. This is the very poorest of the world. So when we think about winners and losers of the global economy of the last 20 years, um, those in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, um, for the most part, saw no gains in income. But as we go up the, the back of the elephant here and you see this big, almost plateauing or back of the elephant, we see this enormous gain that has been had in terms of uh, poverty reduction. And this is occurring, this billion people lifted out of poverty, 600 million alone are in China. And that's what this, this part of the uh, chart is, is depicting there. So that's our first set of real winners. We see for the first time in Chinese history, the introduction into, we wouldn't call them necessarily middle classes by our standards, but certainly no longer destitute. Um, and are able to make life choices that are very different than just a generation ago. Um, so that's really consequential in terms of um, creating um, the power of consumption and the power to be able to influence markets in China, as well as political power. Um, and we can come back to that in a moment. All right, second class of a set of um, so-called losers here, again, didn't do so well in the last 20 years, the global economy. These are the middle classes of the rich developing world, of the OECD countries. So this is the United States, this is Europe, this is Australia, Japan, Israel. They did not see any income changes over the last 20 years. And in fact, in some countries, including the United States, you can go back to the 1980s, where income levels have remained flat. I'm gonna come back to this in a moment. Final set of uh, people here we're gonna talk about, the second set of winners. These are um, the very rich of the Western world for the most part. So the United States, Europe, um, a handful of countries in Latin America. Noteworthy, the very rich in the world do not, are not predominantly from China or Asia. So the reason we show this is that this, you know, the forces of the global economy of the last 20, 30 years, well, what is that exactly? So that's globalization. Yes, that's an increase in trade and commerce and information and people flows around the world. It's the, the real um, beginning stages of the information economy, and it's also the height of global finance. So you've got three very powerful forces that are affecting distribution, and wealth, distribution of wealth as well as wealth creation around the world. And these forces are shifting pretty dramatically, resulting in some dislocations to include hollowing out of the middle class. And that's what that, kind of the lower part of the trunk is signifying. So when we think about politics in the United States, whether it's you know, Bernie Sanders on the left or Donald Trump on the right, or if we think about um, some of the populist movements in Europe, 
what's in our view going on here is that these are reactions to frustration um, in terms of, of um, not being able to make gains from the modern economy. Now, these get depicted in various ways, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but for us, it's very important to pay attention to that part of the, the graph, that right-hand side, um, and understanding that some pretty substantial uh, political frustrations are being articulated in parts of the world that historically, in recent decades, have been very quiet. So I'm talking about dislocations in the advanced industrial rich world. Um, it's important to just keep that in mind. Meanwhile, we've got the rise of China. So geopolitically, China is demanding much more at the table during a moment where the West, including the United States, is looking inward. And we'll come back to this. Um, let's see. All right. So the next trend to talk about is technology. So all sorts of technologies out there. One of the amazing tasks we had was trying to, frankly, organize different types of technologies and understand which ones were going to have which types of impacts. Um, the most important for us and the most foundational moving forward are the information communications technologies, big data, artificial intelligence, and so forth. Um, these are creating fundamental efficiencies in transforming almost every other area of science and knowledge that you can think of, also finance as well. So when we think about technology, we're paying a lot of attention to these foundational technologies within what we call ICT. Another area to highlight um, concerns biotechnologies and advances there to include genome editing. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but really smart scientists and not so smart scientists now have the capability to augment the human genome. That can be fantastic for medical uh, treatment. And yes, I come from the world of intelligence, so we, we look for nefarious things. Can be a little dangerous, too, in terms of uh, nefarious actors using, using uh, techniques like that. Um, I think the, the biggest picture um, takeaway from technology, two, one, two, two features to pay attention to, the transformations that are happening in terms of the economy, uh, in terms of jobs, and one of the challenges for societies around the world, both in the advanced industrial world as well as the developing world, is whether or not um, education and public policy will come along fast enough to basically provide workers who, are, who could, um, could be displaced, um, instead of being displaced by the technology, to use technology to complement um, what their, their contributions are to, uh, to, to uh, wealth creation, if you will. And um, for us, we're seeing that that is just systematically lagging, not adequate public policy to address this issue. Uh, and then the second key big picture issue about technology to pay attention to is that it really magnifies um, differences of values um, between, um, within societies as well as between countries. If you think about biotechnology specifically, this is an issue where the United States and the United Kingdom are actually in very different places in terms of public policy. The United States is no greater friend in the world than the United Kingdom, but yet on this issue, we're really far apart. Um, and this will become, in our view, a more prominent feature of international politics moving forward. Ideas and identities. Um, because of innovations in technology, including information communications technology, the undergraduates in the room are not old enough to remember this, but I am old enough to remember when I was reading sociology articles about the wonderful things that the internet would do in terms of bringing societies closer together 
and that we would have more enhanced understanding and therefore less conflict. That was a really prominent prediction in, in 1989 when the World Wide Web was born. Um, it turns out it hasn't worked out that way so much. Um, and what we're finding, of course, is that uh, with algorithms and search tools, when we search for something, we might think we're doing a benign search in, in terms of just trying to identify factually what is out there. Give me the truth. That's actually not what comes back at you when you, when you do this. The search is providing relevance to you as a human being based upon your past behavior. So when you search for something, it's going to give you information back that actually resonates with you because you've been looking for other things. So if you search on something that um, is you know, particular community or particular uh, worldview, it's going to give you things back that actually reinforce that worldview. So instead of having the bridging effects that were predicted, it's actually having this isolating effect. Um, and this has some pretty big consequences in terms of uh, the shaping of public opinion. And it's beginning, one of the hypotheses out there is whether or not this is impacting, can be evident in generations, younger people more, uh, uh, exposed to the hardening effects, identity hardening effects than older people, but that's a big unknown on this. One of the other points that we like to talk about um, in terms of the, the Global Trends Project is um, religion becoming um, more prominent in political life. And that may seem, for those of us in the West, not here at Notre Dame, we know that religion is an important thing. This is kind of a no-duh to, to most people who are familiar with this community. Um, but for a lot of people in the West, religion was thought, is thought to be something of a passe, that it does not shape uh, public life. This is not true for most of the world. Most of the world is deeply religious. Um, and the separation of governance and, and religious authority is something that just doesn't happen. Um, and so as we see some political weakness uh, in countries around the world, some of the most viable political ideologies are actually religious. And so the report talks about some predictions in terms of increasing um, salience of religion moving forward. Uh, let's see. All right, getting into conflict trends. The bottom lines here is that we're expecting to see conflict become more diverse, diffuse, and disruptive. And I just want to hit diffuse in the sense that many more actors have access to the means of warfare. Those means of warfare are really, really diversifying. Everything from very crude weapons to very sophisticated weapons. Um, and then finally, the, the use of these weapons by state and non-state actors, we believe is to be targeted towards um, the disruption of societies, not necessarily the full and complete defeat of societies or, or uh, adversaries. Uh, this is true, and when you think about, is especially true, I should say, when you think about the context of actors involved, whether from ISIS to, to states. Um, you think about the tools like cyber. Cyber can now be used as a vehicle to disrupt economies, uh, to disrupt energy and other forms of infrastructure. And those are, are weapons directed at societies, which is very different than the post-1945 rules of the game that we, have, that we believe in the West that most actors abide by. Turns out most actors do not abide by this, and, and those of us in the West are catching up to this phenomenon. Um, but the takeaway here is that societies and civilians are the targets. Um, and that, uh, as we've experienced with Russian meddling in the American election, that's an example of that. More of that to come. Um, 
what does all this mean in terms of political order moving forward? The bottom line is that governance and international cooperation are going to get harder for four primary reasons. We are seeing the proliferation of issues, so many more issues that are incredibly complex in their own right, compounded. We are seeing the proliferation of actors. 10, 15, 20 years ago, we were not talking about countries like Indonesia and Mexico and Turkey having geopolitical consequence in the way we do today. We see many more non-state actors that are geopolitically uh, consequential, from individuals to multinational corporations, again. Finally, a changing information environment that for democracies makes it all the more difficult to, um, frankly, come to consensus on, on shared problems. Um, so these four things, in our view, are making it a heck of a lot harder for governments to govern and for governments to partner with one another internationally in shared um, endeavors. And this is going to take some time to work through. In our view, this is a reflective of a, almost the changing fundamentals of geopolitical and state power, where um, material instruments of power, whether that's money or whether that's the military means, um, those things are absolutely essential, but they're nowhere near adequate in order to respond to the challenges. So there's, there's an imperative in terms of developing relationships to partner with a whole range of actors to deal with this, as well as to get very serious about the information domain, both the integrity of the data and information itself, as well as the systems on which um, those data are maintained and travel and disperse. I mentioned it's going to take a while to figure all this out. We expect, as pe people are sorting this out, things will actually probably get a little bit worse before they get better. So we're expecting to see rising tensions within countries, as we're seeing the proliferation of individuals with voice who want to participate in the political process, sometimes find out that that process is not responsive to them, will take means outside of the process uh, to affect change. Between countries, we also expect a period of heightening tensions. In fact, we judge in the report that uh, the next five years will see greater risks of interstate conflict than at any point since the end of the Cold War. Um, some very specific reasons for this. They talked about it in terms of that, that uh, political economy chart a while back. Um, as the West turns inward and is trying to understand um, how to frankly address the hollowing out of their middle class, the American middle class especially, uh, means we'll be less attuned to international affairs. And that is revealing of a vacuum which other actors are exploiting. Um, and so that's the primary reason, uh, one interpretation of that. A secondary reason, and probably as important, is of course the rise of China. And we saw, we're seeing um, day by day even greater uh, sort of revelations about what the rise of China really means, not just for China, but for the rest of us. The party congress last week with um, President Xi's speech was, was something that we will look back on 20, 30 years from now as a critical um, and defining moment in modern Chinese history. Um, so what is it that China wants in the world? Does it want to cooperate? Does it want regional hegemony? Does it want um, global hegemony? So these are some of the uncertainties here. Our judgment on conflict risks, it's not that any, you know, the major powers especially, it's not that they desire conflict. Uh, no one absolutely wants it. What they want to do, though, is to advance their interests and use all means to do so. 
Russia, China especially, are interested in regional dominance um, and being able to, to have their, in, their influence unimpeded in their regions. Now, how this plays out geopolitically, uh, we will live through and we'll see. The other conflict risk here is, of course, regional aggressors like North Korea, Iran, um, being able to take advantage of this moment. Um, I should highlight here, in this Global Trends Report um, makes, is very plain about this as prior ones were. The United States is a variable in this. In this report, we judge that uncertainty about the United States is directly producing uncertainty in the international system. Um, so we are living through a kind of a difficult moment, in part because of our own role in the world and how that's changing, and lots of questions globally about that. Finally, we see an expanding threat from terrorism. We can talk about that in the q and I want to zip along here so we can get to that. And all along, we're going to be exposed to imminent risks from environmental change, global health shocks, as well as technological change. Um, all right. I mentioned before, more distant futures. They don't need to be so bleak, people. I'm serious. Uh, there are some key choices before us. They're explored in the report through these scenarios. The first important choice has to do with whether or not global economic integration will continue. How will wealth get created in the world, and how will it be distributed? It is a fundamental question before um, all of us, especially in the advanced industrial societies. Um, second question, what will new patterns of cooperation and competition look like? If the post-45 international order, the rules and systems of the United Nations and so forth, the various treaties designed to, to curtail the proliferation of weapons, if these things fray, what are we left with? What sort of new initiatives are out there to either shore those up or replace them with something more effective? And then finally, with this proliferation of actors, both good and bad, might we see new forms of political order emerging? Might we see new ways of renegotiating this basic relationship between societies and governments and what they expect of one another? Um, this scenario is, is the most interesting, I think. I think for the Keogh School, especially those of you who are doing the civil society work and NGO work, this is your scenario. This is your future, and so I'd be really interested to visit with you guys about that. Um, when I gave this talk to Director uh, Clapper and Director Brennan last summer, they were like, fantastic, Susie, that's great. This is depressing, this is dark. <laughs> it is not good. For the love of God, give us some opportunities here. Um, this is what we call good ideas that we, we would hope policymakers take note of. And we thought long and hard about this. And um, we said, well, OK, a world that is more volatile, more uncertain, what are the qualities and attributes of organizations that not just survive these conditions, but thrive in them, that really prosper in these moments? Which led us to the resilience literature, and it specifically led us to apply that literature to three areas. We felt we need to see much more resilience. We thought, not we need. That's very prescriptive of me. I should not say that. Societies will probably be more resilient if their infrastructure is robust to natural um, or other types of disruption that are coming. So think about diversification of, of the core sectors of, a, of an economy, geographic disbursement, um, real diversification of, of sources of wealth within that society. So that would be, that would be one. Um, but also infrastructure in a human sense. 
making sure that our human capital is robust to the technological changes that are coming along, that able to take advantage of technologies instead of just being kind of steamrolled um, past it or by it. The second is in resilience and knowledge. I referred to this earlier in terms of um, robust data um, and paying um, data information systems and the data itself. So ensuring that if um, one of our major Wall Street corporations, um, if it were hacked and had its data distorted, would we know? Would they know? Um, getting very serious about that type of uh, security challenge. There's also another piece of this too, which is equipping our citizens of an ability to recognize um, distorted media, media designed uh, to manipulate and to inflame tensions, um, as opposed to media that might be more balanced. Or how can citizens um, um, basically deal with what some are calling the post-truth, post-fact societies? And so there's some educational imperatives there. Um, although that is very, very tricky, because all of us, no matter how educated we are, have cognitive biases that lend us to like minds rather than learning. So the critical thinking skills you guys now are developing are absolutely critical for managing this future. So going out and seeking diverse viewpoints, incorporating them, being able to do the devil's advocacy, to pay attention to when arguments that you don't like, but you know what, their evidence is on their side. Um, being able to, to, to marshal that uh, and learn from it is very important. Final form of resilience is relationships. The mess of issues out there, it's overwhelming, it's complex, it's coming fast. No one government organization can handle it. How do we partner? Who do we partner with? And we would argue that those partnerships are going to be um, diverse both vertically and horizontally in the sense that um, United States government would partner with localities around the world, would partner with corporations, with NGOs, with individuals, and vice versa. And so really seeing this diversity across sectors and, and actors in shared problem solving. Um, so that's our report. I was a lot longer than I wanted to be. I apologize for that, but thank you for, for your time and attention. And I'm glad to discuss. Move on to question and A. I also wanted to mention I was remiss in my opening remarks for not thanking uh, the Keogh School for mm -hmm. Global Affairs and everybody there who helped make this possible. Um, and in particular, the Associate Dean for Policy, Sarah Sievers, uh, and General Frank Taylor. So I'm really glad to, to thank you now. Um, and so as we move on to, to the Q&A part, I'd like to, to uh, emphasize the Q part, right? So when you have questions, please make sure there are questions. Uh, rather than comments that maybe could lead up to a question, um, please be concise if possible so that everybody has a chance to, to ask Susie uh, what she thinks. So, thank you. And thank you for recognizing Frank and Sarah and this Keogh School. You do too. Um, so you uh, your own sure. Let me start with Griffin. Okay. There. Well, thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate this. In the name of Grifton, <laughs> um, I guess I just wonder where you see cities in the world of tomorrow, in the international system of tomorrow, how do they interact with national governments, their citizens, um, is that a more relevant form of government or uh, level of governance rather? It's a, it's a really important question and, and cities are becoming, and historically I think it's probably always true that we could say that cities will always be are more important than they were yesterday or 10 years ago and that's a, that's, that trend continues. Um, we're seeing 
I think by 2035, more than two-thirds of the global population will be living in cities. Um, for those of you who are working on development policy, kind of think about um, uh, development policy historically has been oriented towards rural poor in the future, and frankly our present. Most of the poor in the world are actually in cities. Um, and so kind of thinking about uh, policy design options that, that address that. In terms of the quality of governance, we're really seeing um, a great deal of innovation uh, and success much more at the local level than we are at the national and certainly at the international levels. And that, I think, speaks directly to these local issues are actually much easier to manage in terms of it's a smaller geography, smaller population, more direct relationships between those in, in positions of authority and, and those in the community. Um, and so it makes the governance relationships, um, frankly, much more functional and, and easier to work with. And so part of the pro one of the projects we have moving forward is, is learning systematically um, about uh, innovation at that local level and seeing if we can identify patterns uh, globally uh, that would suggest broader lessons. Yes, ma'am. Um, thank you so much for your presentation. You mentioned the rising tensions within countries. And I was curious, do you expect to see an increase in independence movements like we saw with the Kurdish and Catalan referendums? Or do you think the negative responses to these will deter that in the future? I would say that there is clearly a fragmentation dynamic afoot. Um, and whether that's Kurds or Catalans or the Brits from the European Union um, and so forth, there's a, um, and this goes to the governance challenges associated with larger swaths of territory and having diverse interests and groups of people within uh, political units. And um, it also speaks to whether or not the governing institutions of those political units are responsive to those communities. Right? So it's not simply that big, diverse, geographically vast areas um, are in and of themselves always harder to manage. That's not always true. You can have really well-designed big places um, that, that are able to manage a diversity of interests. I mean, for a long, long time, the United States is that. And I would hope it will continue to be that in the future. But there's definitely a fragmentation dynamic that's out there. So, whether those, those efforts are a violent means or nonviolent means, um, but this, this push for self-rule and autonomy and having forms of governance that are more reflective of, of the citizens is there. Yes, sir, in the green. Um, how many of these reports have been done? And does anybody ever go back and grade them to see where they were on or off target? <laughs> yep. Yes. We've done, this is the sixth one. And uh, in fact, the last Global Trends Report um, actually included within it um, a page with exactly that sort of a batting average, if you will, of how well, how well we got things. Um, on balance, these reports are very good in terms of um, capturing big structural forces and their implications. So big demographic changes, um, recognition of things, systemic features like uh, stress on the environment, so the first Global Trends Report actually put uh, environmental effects of, of uh, climate change and, and related phenomena on the table as a national security issue. Um, this, that report also uh, called out and said that terrorism would be the defining issue of the post-Cold War period. And that was 1996. Where we, 
we're not quite as precise in that judgment is that we didn't envision non-state actors as being the primary proponent of terrorism. It was much more of a state-backed nature of terrorism. The reports, I think, systematically um, have trouble with the time dimension. Um, this is why we don't call it a, fork, a 20 year forecast. I mean, that would be crazy uh, to do that. Um, it's probably a little crazy to undertake a project like this to begin with. But um, the, the reports, so these, even in this report, um, some of the, the judgments that we thought would play out five years from now, we see evidence of happening now. And the bulk of this analysis was done about, in the lat, about a year ago to two years prior. So. Um, the shelf life, uh, excuse me, the, the ability to, to get the timing of the developments is, is incredibly difficult and, and we've always struggled with that. Um, but those are, we regularly go back and look and learn and try to adjust our methodologies and tradecraft to, um, to, to learn from those experiences. Yes, sir. Uh, I have a fairly open-ended question for you. Um, I'm part of the undergraduate global policy seminar here at the Kiyo School and many of us are juniors and seniors who, uh, are on the precipice of entering the professional world and have an interest in kind of uh, helping to remedy some of these challenges. Um, what sort of strategies or steps would you suggest uh, for, I guess, like the early steps in our career uh, to perhaps like foster resilience in these three areas you identified? So I think one of the fantastic things about the future is that you can contribute to, and this has probably been true, for, it's, it's m even more true in, in, in the years to come, you can contribute to more constructive and peaceful and prosperous societies from any sector. It used to be, oh, this is just the government's problem. You have to serve in government and public service to affect these things. That is not true. You can have, um, you can shape policy on on the environment or on even non-state actors and terrorism issues from the private sector. Um, you can, the role of nonprofits and NGOs and civil society organizations is growing leaps and bounds, in part because the governance challenges that, that, that states are facing are so overwhelming. Um, and so there's a way to serve, if you will, to be in public service from any, any dimension. Um, and I, that, didn't feel like a realistic option to me when I was in your shoes 20-some years ago. Um, so that's a new thing, I think, and that's something to get excited about. Um, I, I would get really comfortable with technology and also the critical thinking skills to retool and adapt, um, and the leadership skills to foster partnerships across disciplines, um, and being able to you know, speak uh, in ways that, that those who are not economists or whatever your field is understand you and what your, your contribution is. Yes, sir. Um, so first, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I'd like to return to the idea of fragmentation that you were talking about earlier. Um, do you think the power of governments um, will decrease in light of the role of NGOs and other non-state actors like, as their jurisdictions increase in the modern world? So I'm a believer in the state, right? I'm going to put my biases on the table. I think it's really hard to create prosperity and peace in the world without an army. I think you need instruments of hard power, frankly, in order to create the conditions of prosperity and inclusion and dynamism in a society. Um, 
But at the same time, because there are so many different issues and the fiscal limits, particularly the ones facing the advanced industrial world, are getting very, very real in terms of guns versus butter type choices. I think my prediction in, in those uh, on the team is that governments will start ceding areas of public policy to the private or non-profit sector. That introduces new issues about accountability. All right, so if my town of Leesburg cedes to my community, River Creek, the policing responsibilities of River Creek, and I've got an overactive homeowner who doesn't like the neighbor kids running across her lawn, um, okay, now we've vested state authority in this private institution, and now we've got a neighbor um, who's not held accountable influencing that. So all sorts of issues like that will have to get sorted out. So that's actually a really interesting area of, of law uh, that will be created in the coming decades to, to sort through that, whether that's domestically or internationally. But I, I do think we are going to see this uh, um, sort of innovation and new partnerships in the way um, public services, whether welfare or security, are provided. But at the end of the day, we still need the instruments of a real state to handle real issues like North Korea, um, very real issues. So. Yes, ma'am. Um, what are three or five books that you would recommend either for undergrads or people who are interested in better understanding what's driving these trends? Wow. Okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So on governance, um, governance issues especially, um, Fukuyama, now those of you who are headed to graduate school and will read all 1,500 pages of his two volumes, and I think there's a third volume coming, really provide a very good snapshot of um, and distillation of, of why our institutions are not responding as effectively as we had, would hope they would be. Um, so that would be one on the governance domain. On um, trying to understand the drivers of inequality, the work by Branko Milanovic, who I cited earlier, um, he's got a fantastic, very readable, um, um, book about um, global patterns of inequality, how it is that globalization is actually leveling the differences between countries. China and the United States actually look a lot more alike today than they did 20 years ago. So it seems like there's equality in the international system or trends towards that. But at the same time, within countries, we're still seeing very sharp differences. And so his book does a nice job at that. And then, um, goodness, you're... Or you could just read Global Trends for your third one, and it's just all there, right? Like, trust me, we were, yeah, that's what my third one, read it. So. Okay. Yes, ma'am. I don't quite know how to phrase this in any diplomatic way. What about the differences among religions that go back, you know, centuries, certainly, in some places or in many places? And how does any institution of the ones you cite begin to react to those. Yeah, so this, this sort of... And maybe cultural is a bigger word than just religion. But. Or even civilizations, really. Um, you know, the, the religion piece is one, we framed that question for ourselves, we posed it to ourselves, and we're like, well, what do we... You know, in the politically correct way, we can say that the, the people of the book, right, all of the Abrahamic traditions, have a lot in common. But at the same time, they also, um, a lot of animosity. Um, 
One of the really fantastic works on this um, is by, I think it's um, Sachs, who's the uh, rabbi for the House of Lords um, in the United Kingdom. He wrote a book about um, the conditions under which religion, uh, religious politics become violent and when they are not violent. And he makes a very important point, which is that all faiths and belief systems can be, have exclusive elements to them, so they define their community by difference, and they also have inclusive uh, elements to them, shared types of inclusion, or it's actually shared types of love that each of them have. And it's a political choice whether to emphasize the inclusive pieces or the exclusive pieces. And that's kind of my simple way of trying to make sense of this, is that all, you know, ideas are in um, a world in which they will be leveraged by political actors, by economic actors, um, and whether or not those ideas are being wielded in a way that builds bridges between communities or is one that hardens and, and doubles down on the identity of the community, that says a lot to me as a political analyst about what's likely to happen moving forward. And so that's how I found that to be a useful way of it. But I don't think there's anything inherent in the world's major faiths that, that require conflict or competition between the faiths. Um, I, yes, ma'am. The note to that was if you killed my ancestors, I'm going to kill you in situations that arise. And that's very oversimplistic, but it's a human nature almost. Yeah, it can be. Right. And, and killing and violence will happen, and there will be histories and legacies of that killing and violence for, for generations to come. But however, that is not, uh, does not cast in stone the future of politics between or, or relations between um, societies. And so that was the other piece of the project that for me as an intelligence officer, spending most of my career in Washington, reading reports and writing reports, getting out into the world and meeting people who are making choices within their communities and dealing with exactly what you're talking about. We met people who, who said to profess to the, you know, he killed my brother, I, you know, the feuding dynamic, it's going to go on and on. But we also met people who said, you know what? I choose not to make, I'm gonna, this ends now. I'm going to treat people differently. Um, and that happens across all faiths. We saw that in, in Muslim contexts, in Hindu contexts, Christian contexts and so forth. So that to me was a wonderful privilege of the project is to be able to see how people are making decisions in their particular uh, cultural um, moment. And, um, and oftentimes and more often than not, they choose the constructive option, not the destructive one. Um, so those of us that are in the Intel business, our job is, to, is, is frankly the protection and safety of the country, right? And so we're, we're looking out for the threats. But at the same time, there's a whole world of wonderful problem solvers out there. And they don't get a lot of attention. Um, so, but for me, it's are these dynamics uh, resulting in an inclusive outcome or an exclusive outcome? And those exclusive ones, that's the danger zone. Yes, Mike. Um, Susie, most of our theories and understanding of uh, political and social development would have anticipated that as countries modernize, religion uh, would be less central to political identity and less of a, uh, a, right. a major factor um, in political relations. Um, that doesn't seem to have been the case. 
the question then is why? Have you guys thought about that? I mean, was it never the case that the world was becoming more secular? Did it become more secular and then, you know, a wave crested and went back? I don't think there's a master answer to that at all. I think where we're at on beginning to answer that question is a lot of um, sort of niche insights that get to explaining uh, the, the counterintuitive outcome. One of them is an observation about urbanization. It turns out that the, the first generation of city dwellers tend to be much more religious than second and third and fourth generations of city dwellers. And so we have been living through a phase of massive urbanization. So that's one reinforcing element of, and the reason for that is that when people are dislocated and they go to new places, they are looking for communities of, frankly, welfare and help. And an identity-based community like religion can offer that. And of course, there's the social welfare pieces of religious institutions and practices that, that are all part of that story. Um, you know, the other piece of it, too, is that in many, many, most parts of the developing world, state institutions are really weak. Um, and so state and nation building um, is just not nearly as strong and as powerful as religious identities have been. And so when you're looking for a moral compass, and you're looking for authority figures to help interpret and navigate change and difficulty, people will often turn to religious figures as opposed to political figures because those religious figures have much more credibility. And so when you think about the two-thirds of the planet that is, could, could, could be lumped into what we call fragile states, um, that's pretty much what we're dealing with there. So again, I think there are lots of different kind of micro-mechanisms contributing to this. Um, and I don't think there's a universal theory of it just yet, but that's kind of a collection of our observations on it. Yes, sir. Um. History might not necessarily repeat, but it tends to rhyme. Um, and so I wonder, within the Global Trends Report, as, as an organization, once you have published a report, do you also, uh, maybe partnering with uh, different academic institutions, only maybe even within your institution, go back and realize perhaps times in, in, uh, in history where there are where parts of history can apply or can be insightful to understanding mm -hmm. uh, the trends of today. So historical analogies um, can be very, very helpful. They can also be very hurtful in terms of our analytic insights. So we need to make sure that we um, learn from the right cases. And so this is um, speaking to me as a social scientist in answering this. So. Um, <laughs> We, do a, we spend a lot of time trying to identify what are the core features of a particular moment, and then ask ourselves, well, where else did these features apply historically? So this is less so in the Global Trends Project, but much more so, um, frankly, as a, a learning from history um, 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 technique um, to use analogies in that way. But you have to make sure you have the right set of cases to learn from. Um, you know, the anniversary of World War I was just, or the onset of World War I was just a few, uh, was it just last year or the year before? Um, oh, there are so many articles out there saying that right now is another World War I. Is it? Is it really? Yes, there are some similarities. But there are some huge differences, too. So you have to make sure you're matched on the right conditions. Um, yes, sir. Yeah. Question. Uh, <clears throat> you, you about, you, you, you mentioned many uh, determinants mm -hmm. and projections of where society is going and, and population growth and so on. 
<clears throat> much of this, I think, is like a static, well, it's a dynamic blueprint mm -hmm. of major trends. But I would view it as you give it to a policymaker uh, as game theory. So I want to affect the dynamics. Yeah. I want to determine relationships. I want prime movers. I want I want to adjust things, affect change. So I and not that it's necessarily a zero sum game, but at the same time, uh, the economic pie, the political pie, whatever we live in a finite world in many ways. So that you want to affect change. Uh, everything's not endogenous and not passive. I'm sitting there right. watching these things grow. I'm going to develop relationships. I, I want to spread democracy in Iraq. I think the best way to do that, to give them democracy, maybe is to invade Iraq, et cetera. Uh, I'm going to do something, take action. Um, <clears throat> Putin in Croatia, et cetera. I'm going to affect change and then become somewhat irreversible. They have that part of the world. They have some hegemony. They've affected change for decades or centuries. So I would think as you develop this information, you know, pass this intelligence to the policymakers, they want, they're going to affect change. So I wonder if you could address those. Sure. There are, there are parts of our assessment that are extremely dynamic and fluid and have all sorts of opportunities for policy engagement, for shaping, for interventions. Uh, for different U.S. policy choices. Um, I think the geopolitical pieces of global trends, we're exactly in that moment right now. We see a great deal of fluidity in the international system, much more so than, um, you know, just 10 years ago even, and absolutely more so than we did during the Cold War. Um, and so that, the future of those, inter uh, whether we get to a more, in game theoretic terms, a stable equilibrium again, um, this is a moment to be able to, sh to, to compete, cooperate in a way um, that gives policymakers openings, is what I'm trying to say. Um, but there are some other parts of the report um, that you know, have big core structural forces that are driving um, outcomes. So the demographic pieces, the fact that Europe and the United, not so much the United States, but especially Europe and Northeast Asia, are aging at a pretty rapid clip here, and they're not replacing their populations, means that they have a labor shortfall. And that's a very difficult structural thing to deal with. Meanwhile, in Africa, in parts of South Asia, we have a very youthful population. And in some parts of the world, we also have a population that's becoming more male than female. There are some pretty clear implications that come out of those big structural um, patterns. And so for a policymaker receiving that information, it's hey, this is the context you're dealing with here. Um, policy uh, choices are still, um, you still have an opportunity to shape things, but let's, let's gauge our expectations about the likely effects that we could have. Um, but I think you're right in pointing out areas of the report that have a lot of, or the world really, that have a lot of dynamism to them and opportunity for shaping, and other areas not as much dynamism or opportunity for shaping. Um, yes, ma'am. Um, in reading the report, there was um, some discussion on how uh, economic opportunities and leadership roles for women will increase in the future, but there'll also be some backlash to that. Yes. Um, I was more wondering, like, what can, like, governments, NGOs, academic institutions, et cetera, do to 
maximize these opportunities and minimize the backlash. So I'm not a policy person here, and you're going to stretch me a little bit too much, but I would put that question back on you guys. You know, think about the conditions in which uh, women or people who have, who have historically been marginalized get new opportunity, um, affect some change, and maybe that performance is threatening to other people. How can we minimize the threat and maximize the good? One of the studies we cite was a really cool research project by McKinsey looked at um, uh, uh, gender uh, employment patterns globally. And it turns out that, um, so each by region, and you look at it, so the average performer by region, if all countries could meet their, or excuse me, if all regions could meet their average uh, performance of, of women's entrance in the workforce, something like 10% more global economic uh, uh, wealth creation would happen. So there's money on the table here that is not being utilized because women are not part of the formal economy, right? So there's all sorts of areas on that issue alone to create more economic opportunity and performance. Um, but for a variety of reasons, that isn't tapped. Um, so I would put the challenge back on you guys to figure out how to tap that and then you know, the probably inevitable um, difficulties and dislocations that's going to cause. How do we work through that? Um, yes, sir. So the report mentioned different winners and losers that have been created um, as a result of globalism. If we see a continued decline of, like, the liberal world order and as populism continues to rise, how would those affect, like, the winners and losers in society? So that trend line, our... our um, use of scenarios and simulations on exactly that point repeatedly got us into what one would call a spheres of influence world where um, you have dominant uh, countries within each region um, and trade patterns would actually become much more regional than global. Um, some countries would do just fine in that universe. Countries that have huge uh, natural resource endowments diverse human capital population, uh, they are able to feed themselves, um, and so forth. That's the United States, that's Brazil. They'd be okay in a world like that, believe it or not. Small countries, not going to do so well in this. Small countries that have gotten used to being a member of, uh, being a part of global supply chains, dependencies on others for food, for water, um, it's a huge problem for those worlds. And so the conflict predictions there are pretty difficult. Um, and so managing, uh, managing conditions so we don't end up with that outcome, that's a real takeaway from the report to say there's a very clear pathway if this um, particular set of trends continues and here are some opportunities to shape those policy choices. And frankly, those are choices that we as citizens also have. Um, and that's another thing to remember is that it's not just those guys in Washington that are figuring this out. It's all of us are in this together. Yes, ma'am. question for you. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, how you think about sort of democratic backsliding or um, the increasing sort of flirtation with authoritarianism that we seem to see in places like Europe or in Turkey. Um, there's just sort of this general sense that, that people are becoming more jaded about democracy, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. It's been very interesting the last 10 years. There has been uh, what Larry Diamond calls, a scholar at Stanford, a democratic recession of sorts. Um, when you look at civil liberty scores, 
um, around the world is that we're not seeing as strong of a democratic performance as we were a decade or more ago. You combine that with actually um, youth and um, attitude surveys of youth um, in advanced in industrial democracies, the United States, Australia, parts of Europe. Youth will say, eh, free speech doesn't mean as much to me as it means to my mom and dad. What's that all about? Wait a second. This is the internet generation. You don't want free speech? Um, so there's something there, is a generational dynamic, that I think we have yet to see the effects of. Um, so the, the forecast for prediction there would be maybe a little bit more of the regression on the backsliding. Um, the other thing, too, is that you look, we've been through a spate really since, um, goodness, when do you want to time it? Um, you know, just think about the last 15, 20 years of elite policies um, and the performance of those policies. So we've had the financial crisis, which has been a huge black eye for Wall Street and, frankly, market liberalism. Um, we've had, here, we'll talk about it here, um, pedophilia scandal in the Catholic Church, huge black eye in terms of elites in our in faith uh, communities. We've had um, the Enron scandal, countless sort of elite failures coming up again and again and again. And that's, um, in some corners, causing people to doubt the merits of open, plural, democratic societies and systems. I mean, the biggest one to talk about is the performance and political polarization um, of our country. Um, and so with that, you get international narratives and perceptions of the United States and this model that, hey, this isn't what it was cracked up to be. It may be an openness to, to try something else. Of all the trends you talked about in the report, if you had to choose one, which would you say poses the greatest threat to the United States security? <laughs> I am actually extremely optimistic and bullish about the fundamentals of this country. The thing that we seem to have lost the ability to do is talk to one another in political compromise. That to me will take us, you know, I'm in international politics. I want, I, you know, I think a lot about the China-US rivalry. Of course I want the United States, uh, love of God, look where I work, you know. It's not going to be China or an adversary that takes out the United States. It'll be ourselves, right? And so that's the thing I worry about is the quality of our politics and it's not just a dynamic for the United States to worry about. Countries in Europe are dealing with this, and other democracies are dealing with this. And so it's a real challenge for liberal democracies to whether or not we can get our house in order and deal with some very difficult fiscal challenges um, and restore civility to our politics and compromise. Is there a uh, particular prediction for Russia, like in general terms, like we think of them as having kind of a declining population, dwindling economy, but strong capability still. So how does that hold up in this? Story? Right. So the way we like to frame it, again, these aren't predictions, not crystal ball stuff, but expectation. We've got a rising China, an inward West, distracted by its own problems, and a Russia that's trying to demonstrate its relevance. Those demographic and economic structural problems are, in the long run, are huge, huge problems for Russia. 
In the short run, however, um, Moscow is using, frankly, foreign policy in order to shore up political control. It's using corruption to shore up political control. All right? So these are, these are moves that uh, political actors make when their survival is on the line. No prediction that Russia's, Moscow, as we know it today, is going to go anywhere. Um, but at the same time, this is the behavior, in our view, of an actor that's trying to use um, sort of aggrandizement on the international stage in order to consolidate power back home. And so we're likely to see more of these types of um, incursions, whether, whether Syria, whether Ukraine, um, and so forth. Whether, and even the, the meddling in, in the American and European elections. Um, these are, these, are, these are actions to demonstrate that we're relevant, we matter, we're consequential, you can't ignore us. We, we have a voice and a vote in this. Yes, sir. I'd like to hear about INC's research concerning the future evolution of economic systems, mm -hmm. particularly we know that market liberalism, socialism have been criticized so long, and as a result, we have the uh, sprout of nationalism. So, is there any sort of convergence in uh, some direction that can predict what kind of economic system will come up with, which makes uh, everybody happy? It's yep. a big question mark. <laughs> I would not deign to answer, give you an answer to that question. I will, I will give you something to think about, though, that we are, um, we spend a lot of time puzzling over, and that's the effects of, tech, the effects of technology on what has been a fairly familiar developmental model, right? So when we think about the progress of, of moving from a, a, an underdeveloped country into developing country status into advanced industrial status, there's a development model there with education and industrialization um, that's been pretty standard for the last 150 years or so and is being adopted by lots of countries in the world. Big challenge to this moving forward are implications of robotics and artificial intelligence for that low-skilled uh, development, that, that step where, where low-skilled labor is really um, where it's at in terms of driving the economy. We're kind of at a point now, very soon here, where robotics and artificial intelligence are, will result in job displacement at that level. And so countries in South Asia and in Africa that might be banking on that particular development model they may discover that that's not a safe bet. Um, and so there's a, uh, a disruption, if you will, there um, that has yet to really be um, thought through. The other piece of it, too, is that you know, for all the just amazing things that Silicon Valley and our technologists have accomplished and achieved, lots of money created, not a lot of employment, and also not a lot of new um, frankly, very significantly new research achievements out of it, or R&D achievements out of it, if you will. The point I'm making is, uh, you know, if you look at uh, Asian success, Meiji Japan, or even Bismarck Germany, mm -hmm. and Xi Jinping China, yeah. uh, it's a market system, but it's a state capitalism. It's quite a little Anglo-American system. Yeah. Uh, women debating as a political science economist that uh, Chinese system seems more optimal, better system for the newly developing countries. Good state, take leadership, which Xi Jinping is doing, you know. Right. So what, what 
So I, I knew you were going there, and I just, I, I <laughs> okay, fine. Um, I think what we're going to find is that um, she, and actually who before him, and the economic planners of the Chinese Communist Party figured out how to use market capitalism for uh, corporatist communist purposes. Yes, that's right. Um, and that they're, they are not necessarily maximizing profit in the way that Western corporations are, right? Maybe they're maximizing employment. Maybe there's some other, there's some other uh, uh, value that is at stake here. Um, the thing that worries me about the Chinese economy moving forward is a couple things. We've been hearing a long time now about the shift from uh, an export-oriented economy to a consumer-driven economy. What we have not seen is any stepping back of state investment at all. Um, and so it's not like this economy has yet been without the very significant training wheels of, the, of Beijing on it, right? So that's, that's one point. Another point is that it's really, really, really opaque. Opaque things kind of scare me. Um, they are sources of surprise. So I wonder what sort of surprises are going to come out of that. Um, and I could be wrong, but, and frankly, Wall Street is opaque in its own way because it's so complicated mathematically that very few people understand the structure of it. Um, so both of those things kind of scare me. But you're right, there is an alternative development model that's out there. We've now heard from the party, uh, from Xi last week, that he's actually putting it out as a model, which is a very different shift, a different move for China. But we'll see. My goodness, you're still going at it. All right. Continue on this U.S.-China theme. Um, obviously, there's areas of contention and rivalry, but even as you mentioned in this last slide, for a positive future or opportunities in the future, in which spheres or areas do you find there be the greatest potential for cooperation between the U.S. and China? What are the biggest areas of cooperation between China and the U.S.? They could be the environment, again. They were very significantly the environment and climate change. Terrorism shared security challenges like North Korea um, could be. We have a misalignment of some interest there. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, um, and this is shared by my colleagues and, and co-authors of the report, that um, the United States and China are still interested in international order and peace and security. They may have different ideas as to how to get there, but at the end of the day, they shared that. I have a hard time making putting Russia in the same boat as those two. And so I think there's actually a, a, a lot of room for cooperation with the relationship with Beijing. Um, and it's really important that we frame conversations in ways that still allow for highlighting those patterns of cooperation. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, so although we don't live in a uh, multipolar system, you cited um, a growing number of nations uh, buying and actually getting geopolitical power, yep. um, and even non-states sometimes. Um, what do you see as like hypothetical um, future catalysts for um, moving towards the like uh, harmonious communities uh, growth path for the future? Is that like North Korea self-imploding, or what other catalysts would you? I love the idealism. I really do, and I don't want to do anything to uh, rock you of that. However, uh, 
you know, this is just kind of politics 101. Different actors, different countries have different interests. Sometimes those interests are complementary. Sometimes they're radically misaligned. Sometimes those interests are so important that they're willing to do some very dangerous things in order to secure them. I have a hard time seeing how that sort of basic fundamental goes away. I mean, the way we've seen it go away in simulations is something really horrible has to happen. Like really, really, really horrible. Um, and that's not a world any of us really want to be in, right? We don't want a global pandemic. We don't want, you know, the use of a nuclear weapon in anger. We don't want, or in, in any use for that matter. We don't want any of those things to happen. Um, so unfortunately, the, you know, the scenarios that trigger that outcome that you talked about um, require something, a crisis, and the outcome doesn't last. So I think that gets us back to how the heck do we manage the competing interests in a way that we don't end up with these really extreme crisis moments being real threats all the time. And so that's the management of international politics and domestic politics within institutions, with compromise, and so forth. Okay. You mentioned there's a difference between the United States and Britain in biotechnology. Can you explain that, please? Sure. Um, the problem with my role in this project is I have to know a, a little bit about everything, and I'm going to give you just a, a, like the two things I know about this. Um, the United Kingdom has had, its research community has had a much more um, um, uh, open and permissive environment for experimentation with stem cell issues and things like that historically. In the United States, there are different rules in terms of governing human subjects. And so that sort of basic um, distinction between the two research communities has resulted in the, the British uh, researchers actually getting very far down the, the field on this, and actually the Chinese researcher way down the field on this. Um, American researchers are also in this space, but they are more constrained. Um, although that is changing quite um, rapidly. Um, so the, the point from a public policy perspective, though, is that we may live, in, you know, some countries may, have, may try to govern and regulate these technologies, like uh, biotech or even artificial intelligence and so forth. Other countries won't regulate them. And so there are um, consequences of that. Um, some countries may accrue economic or, or military competitive advantages with the lack of regulation. Um, and so there's a, there's a, it's a choice that um, uh, societies and governments make as to whether or not um, that type of research is, is allowable. Um, and sometimes that research uh, may not be allowable in the public domain, but it is allowable under very strict and regulated circumstances and so forth. So the point about the British and, and American example there, though, is that here are two societies that are very similar in terms of their political ideals, but yet for reasons of, of kind of something like a minor regulatory policy are coming out in very different places on a huge issue, being able to change human DNA in a way that would be self-replicating. And that's what that, that technology is about. So. Well, thank you so much All right. for what was a wide range
I just want to say thank you very much and to you and to uh, Mike and to Notre Dame and Frank and the Keough School here for, for having the Nick um, be a part of your weekend experience and your classroom experience. So thank you. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag N-D underscore I-S-C. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap. <laughs>